0: We interrupt this broadcast with some important news Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week It's time 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 for Taiwan This Week
1: Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me your host Gavin Phipps And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Xiao Xin Chung. Hello everyone And by Michael Fahey
0: Great to be back Gavin
1: and the first matter of business today is simple. As we're recording this show, neither the KMT, the Taiwan People's Party or Terry Guo have registered their candidacies for January's election with the Central Election Commission. So we'll begin with a matter of fact and, Michael, what some are calling history. That being yesterday, Thursday's events at the Grand Hyatt Hotel in Taipei when the Taiwan People's Party's Kerwin Jue, the KMT's Hou Yu-wei, the KMT's Eric Ju, and former president Ma Ying Zhou popped off to said hotel for a bit of a rather public tete-a-tete.
0: Yes, Kevin, it was one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen in Taiwanese politics, uh, which has a high standard for unusual uh, events. Uh, I think that we need to pull back a little bit. uh, The outcome, of course, was that they did not come to an agreement at that point about a joint ticket, once again. Uh, But the way that they did it was very acrimonious and out in the public, and I think the real big loser here was the KMT, who I had always expected that, as the Marxists say— The DPP's historical mission was basically to get rid of the KMT in Taiwan, and then it would fragment into ordinary left and right parties. However, it may be that Ke Wenche, Ke Pi, is the one who is going to finally end the KMT as... A major party in Taiwanese politics, at least in its current form. The KMT was simply humiliated. They were presented with a take-it-or-leave-it offer. Uh, the offer was that Ho could agree in public to be the vice presidential candidate, and nothing else was on the table. Their kingmaker, mind Joe, looked ineffectual, and I believe that his uncanny power over the party uh, in recent years will probably diminish as the KMT normalizes into a more regular Taiwanese party, shedding its nationalist Chinese baggage and its uh, close association with the Republic of China. It also sowed the human factor in politics, you know, Kopi is very big on science and numbers, which these days are needed to persuade people, and that's part of his appeal. But what we saw yesterday were people who were concerned about status, pecking order, who is going to be the host, where they were going to meet. All of those things were more important to them than the Republic of China or even getting rid of the DPP. It was truly remarkable. And I think, like almost everyone in Taiwan, I'm still digesting what happened. Michael, did you have any other comments about what happened during the uh, events themselves, the body language, the terms that were used? Uh, there was just so much to talk about there.
2: Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you. I mean, historically, this is uh, this is an event that's never been seen in Taiwanese, you know, electoral history. Um, but if you just look at the like, event itself, I mean— uh, Three potential presidential candidates getting together in a hotel room, and they even set up two giant clocks to round down some kind of time to make sure they have a
0: fruitful discussion. Um, and, well, and, also, I think, to make sure that Terry Go didn't have to pay any <laughs> overtime for the room. That,
2: that, too. That's very important. So, well, just like... Michael mentioned, I mean, we are witnessing uh, the disintegration of uh, KMT because uh, this is not what usually KMT's, you know, way of doing things. I mean, KMT has been an established party for over 100 years, and the way they do things tends to be methodical and very calculated. So so at the, you know, at a wink of a time that you call, you know, the three top, KMT officials to a hotel room uh, and to talk with Terry Cole and Ker P. I mean that's just never heard of and
0: I would never imagine that this was gonna happen because it's just don't wild. they don't they have a really strong preference for secret meetings and secret rooms? That, that, that's exactly
2: <laughs> what I thought. I mean, because you know, KMT Kirby's, uh, uh core value is, you know, you know, openness. What he claimed to be openness and transparency, but KMT does not have, want to have anything to do with transparency. They want to have, you know, very, you know, uh, very calculated meetings, and then they, they want to make sure they they push out candidate that that's uh, well thought out. But so these meetings just blow my mind. And, and but just like Michael mentioned, the the, the disintegration of KMT I actually it's not going to come from DPP, it's actually coming from p and that's, uh, I think I see the very beginning of that in the 2018 election, where um, the DPP officially uh, have their candidates for Taipei City Mayor, and that extremely angered uh, uh, KP at that time. So that's I think that's a moment in time where KP decided he's not going to have anything to do with DPP, and he's going to move toward the Pan Blue side and try to absorb all he can uh, by being a uh, second-term Taipei City Mayor and try to establish a whole team of uh, uh uh, staff from the, the Pan Blue uh, camp so I think that that's the beginning of that and this is I think the event we see yesterday uh, is actually the, the highlight of that happening in, in the past few years
1: I should point this out now Xiao chung's English name is Michael which <laughs> I did not know before that's why Michael said to Michael Michael I'll explain <laughs> that to the listeners right now <laughs>
0: <laughs> All
1: right. Michael Fahey and um, Humiliation is that a fair word to use for Thursday's events?
0: Absolutely. Uh, I thought that. Uh, I mean, Julie and uh, Eric Ju, I lost his temper and basically threw down the mic at the end. I think that was a sign of how frustrated he was. Their their aides were arguing with each other in public. Uh, just going back to what uh, Shin, do you pronounce your name, Cheng yeah, or yeah. Sheng? Chen. Tongue, uh, our our bright shining new light uh, um, which is what his name means in chinese, was saying um, the the kmt is kind of like the is is actually very much like the cCP uh the Communist Party of china uh they they have In the past, they wanted to have a big show where everything was planned out beforehand and there was this appearance of unity. Now, over the years in Taiwan's robust democracy, that ability to project unity and put on a big show has has diminished and so now it looks nothing like the Communist Party anymore but remember they're evil twins who are bonded together in history uh, so they, they they didn't like this situation at all and I think that actually the one who was the most interesting to me was Hoyoe. I think Hoyoe was humiliated and I think he handled it pretty well he was smiling and and but he got in some real jabs uh, at at Kopee about um, being in good faith and sticking with the agreement. He was angry. Uh, he wasn't showing it so much. But Ho is a proud man. Uh, I think people underestimate him. And uh, he was not happy. And Kopi has made a permanent enemy.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I find it very interesting that Ho um, cannot enter any discussion without Eric Chu and Ma Ying Zhou. So I think that's the impression that has been down on many of uh, Taiwanese observing this. Is Why is Ho going anywhere without these two bosses of his, uh, you know, watching over him? So this is very damaging to to Ho because that image is not going to wash it away. People are going to think of Ho as just um, some kind of uh, um, a maybe puppet is a strong word but just some kind of uh, uh not standing alone by himself right he has to go anywhere with, with uh eric chu and mine joe behind him so this is a very uh tough image for him to to shake off
1: and do you see the end of any political careers here
2: well i, I wouldn't go there but um i see three candidates they 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 are taking a real beating, you know, in the news media because on the other side, which we'll talk about later, that the other ticket, a DPP's ticket, is appearing extremely presidential. Um, they're talking to international press and all that. But on the other hand, these uh, three presidential candidates, the pen blue camp, they cannot seem to unify what, despite whatever uh,
0: effort they're trying to do. Any ending of political careers here after Thursday? I don't like to predict things uh, that happen in the future, but I feel that Nathan Bato, who has a tremendously good blog called Frozen Garlic that anyone interested in Taiwanese politics should be reading, recently had a post uh, about the deal between the KMT and the TPP that was going to use polls to decide and eventually fail. But one thing he mentioned in it that was really interesting is he went through the history of how Ma Zhou has had a weird power over the KMT ever since totally losing uh, the last election for him. It's very strange. I mean, Li hui didn't even lose an election, but he got kicked out uh, and lost all his power in the KMT. But Ma Zhou did not. So when Jiang Qichen, uh who was briefly chairman Wanted to discuss the 1992 consensus, Mind Joe was able to come in and just squash any discussion of that. And I believe that he also forced Ho to kiss the ring in order to get the nomination and endorse the 1992 consensus, even though Ho previously had been staking out a more centrist position that I think would have been more advantageous to him. I really wonder if. Ma ying and his generation of 70-year-olds, who are true believers in the Republic of China and the KMT, will continue to have much influence over the party in the future. I would expect younger politicians uh, who are more closely associated in, and with Taiwan to—really, uh, the hoyo i wang Jinping faction, I believe, will take over in the future— uh, Eric Ju may survive in some way. Uh, he's very nimble and smart, but he's in trouble too.
2: Well, yeah, I mean that—that's a very great assessment of uh, the line of uh, succession, if you will, in KMT's side. But I have actually many friends who is a uh, younger, much younger generation, probably about thirties uh, and forties, who are very um, aware of the fact that in KMT the the succession of power is occurring very very slow you can observe just like michael said my enjoy has been uh have a whole of the party for the past uh dec- few decades um and then still they are not still not letting the younger generation of politicians come up to uh, the central uh, power of the party system to to let them have a share of the decision making process so i mean that's a very uh, tradition of uh, kmt that's a uh, In stark contrast with with other parties, that's much younger and vibrant.
1: And moving on now, and talking of the other side, of course, because the other side began on Monday when Xiao B. Kim submitted her resignation as Taiwan's top envoy to the United States to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in the AM. Now the PM on Monday, the DPP formally announced that she is Lai Ching running mate for January's election. The ticket was unveiled at the party's presidential campaign headquarters in Taipei by Lai, who said he opted to choose Xiao as his running mate because of her stellar performance as Taiwan's top representative to the United States since 2020. He went on to praise Xiao for her willingness to make sacrifices whenever the DPP needed her most, including by running as a lawmaker and spending 10 years in Hualien County. Not that I'm saying there's anything wrong with Hualien County. It is a fantastically beautiful place. Now, while speaking after that announcement by Lai Ching-de, Xiao pledged to bring her experience in government service to her post as vice president. Now, the next day, they popped off to the Central Election Commission at just after 9am to register their candidacies, where Lai said both he and Xiao deeply love this land and this country and are committed to doing their utmost to safeguard Taiwan and promote democracy, peace and prosperity. Li also said that he and Xiao will continue leading Taiwan on a stable path, seeking opportunities to engage with the international community while avoiding heavy reliance on China. And he went on to claim that the whole world is watching Taiwan's election. Now, Michael, I think the whole world is watching Taiwan's election is a bit of an overstatement, but as Xiao pointed out earlier, they are sounding rather presidential already.
0: The whole world is not watching Taiwan's election. (laughs) Uh, There may be people in Taiwan who think it is, but uh, unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, that's not the case. I had really mixed feelings about Shelby Kim becoming the vice presidential candidate because I feel that she has been Taiwan's best ambassador to the U.S. ever, by far. The only person that you might be able to compare her to in effectiveness was Wellington Gu, not the one who's the National Security Council chair now, but the ROC ambassador to the U.S. in the 1950s, Wei Gu Jun. But I think he wasn't really representing Taiwan. So I think Xiao definitely wears the crown on this. She was so effective in the U.S. at making Taiwan's case. And it's hard. I know Taiwan has other talented people, but she's leaving very big shoes to fill. And also, she's a bit like Tsai Ing-wen herself. Uh, She's not really that dynamic of a public speaker uh, she, she did win some, uh, you know, a really hard seat in Hualien a few years ago. So she's not to be underestimated as a campaigner. Um, but, uh, you know, I really did feel. But, you know, I, I've come around to it because uh, William Lai has a lot of domestic political experience as mayor of Tainan City, as the premier. But he doesn't have an enormous amount of international experience. And uh, Xiaomei Qin, King can really complement him in this area. Uh, And I think that her role in Washington was so effective because everyone knew they were talking to someone who had a very direct line to President Tsai. Well, if she continued as ambassador in the U.S., uh, you know, it's not as clear that You know, she would be, you know, directly speaking the words of William Lye, as it were. So it makes a lot of sense uh, in many ways in the end. The, The one thing I hope is that she can be a little bit more careful about flippant comments like the one yesterday about I think she was asked, you know, why should young people who are suffering from low salaries and high housing costs vote for the DPP? And she said, because we're the best. Well, that sounded pretty good, uh, but I think it displayed a certain lack of empathy and attention to the legitimate concerns of younger people.
2: Well, I, I 100% agree with Michael. I actually say the, the, the entirety of what I was going to say because I, too, I mean, been uh, living in the United States for, for, for almost 20 years, I have s- observed the Taiwanese... American community, how much they love Shelby Kim. So, uh, and I too feel a sense of loss that she left the post as a Taiwanese ambassador to the United States because she, just as like Michael alluded to, was extremely effective. And we've seen in the past. Few years that uh, whether it be the uh, shipment of vaccines from the United States to Taiwan or other um, international events, where um, she's making work behind the scenes to make sure Taiwan is promoted and front and center in a lot of uh, international issues. So um, she's really, really a champion of Taiwan in the international arena. So by pulling her back from that uh, diplomatic post and then uh, giving her the vice presidential. on a, on a ticket it's actually um, number one it, it, it actually is um, makes sense just like Michael said it, it actually because number one she complements William Lai so well I mean being a female number one and being a, a, a vast experience in diplomacy as opposed to uh, William Lai's domestic experiences and also she appeals to the younger generation I mean she's almost like a, a, a double of Tsai Ing-wen that she actually attracts uh, the group of voters that William Lai is, is not able to attract. For example, uh, William Lai appeals to the, the base, the, the maybe 60 years or, or older, and then Taiwan is independent-minded base of the DPP. Uh, whereas Xiao Kim attracts a lot of younger voters uh, who actually supported President Tsai Ing-wen and Cape Ke- Ke- Pi you know, to be honest, there's a lot of uh, voters younger who actually uh, uh, supports both Tsai Ing-wen and Kirpi And those are the group of voters that King is able to, you know, communicate to and to talk to. And by not being extremely uh, uh, Taiwanese-dependent in her image, actually a lot of young people actually supports whatever she's uh, uh, representing.
1: And of course, Michael, there was a rather sorry comment from a member of the KMT concerning Shelby Kim and whether she was overqualified for the job as vice president.
0: Well, she may well be overqualified for this job, but this job is potentially qualifying her to be president in the future, uh, which is extraordinarily interesting uh, because of her... Ethnic background. Uh, She has an American mother. uh, And I think it should also be noted that Tammy Lai uh, is Amerasian. Uh, Her father was an American soldier or serviceman. And it's pretty remarkable that, and a testament to diversity in Taiwanese society, that especially Tammy Lai, especially an Amerasian who were, you can read in the Taiwan Reporter about uh, what. How they existed on the bottom level of Taiwanese society, completely forgotten and shunned. So it's it's a it's it's really kind of moving to see uh, both Tammy Lai and uh, Xiaobi Kim. But Shelby Kim is really qualified for high office and if things go right for her and if she wants the job i'm not sure anybody really should want it but uh she could very well end up being president of taiwan someday so i'd say she's qualified to be vice president to get some practice
1: <laughs> <laughs> and of course Tammy Lai is terry Gore's running mate xiao so is she qualified is xiao became overqualified the comment was obviously a stupid comment, but what will she do? Because of course, traditionally the vice presidential gig has been a bit of a sit there and don't do anything. I'll meet as the president, the important people. You can meet the other people.
2: Yeah, exactly. So I, I would tend to agree. She's quote unquote, overqualified because she is, um, um, has experience in you know in the parliament, in, in, in Li Fa Yuan. And also she has a vast diplomatic experience. So being a vice president is probably not the, the best use of her Talent and expertise, right? But, but, um, but well, the vice president can in the past been, you know, also be the premier. For, so, some I may mean, heard some, you know, people in Taiwanese community to, you know, make sh- to, to call for she can she still be the ambassador? Uh, why as vice president? Probably not, but she can do a lot of things that can complement the, the future uh, Taiwanese ambassador and make sure that the Taiwan U.S. relations can be as strong
0: uh, as it is not right now. I wanted to make one other comment about her. one something else she said to me displayed an extremely deep understanding of American politics and what Taiwan should do and shouldn't do. She mentioned that uh, it's very important that the Taiwan issue not become embroiled in partisan American politics. I don't think this is an issue that too many people in Taiwan think about. But as an American who's sadly familiar with the dismal state of our politics, it is really important that Taiwan does not get turned into some kind of ridiculous uh, toy for American politicians. And Xiao Xin is very uh, smart to say that Taiwan has to play a very delicate balancing act to maneuver that harsh environment. Yeah, and also another
2: point, Xi Xin has been very um, strong on the on the issue of defense. So. Because people talk about if China attacks Taiwan, the U.S. has come to Taiwan's aid. Well, that may or may not be true. But what Mei Qin has been saying in the past few years is that the defense of Taiwan is the sole responsibility of Taiwan. So that's why Taiwan has to defend itself. China has to, you know, buy enough, you know, art. You know, arm itself enough to make sure we can put up a violent defense of our sovereignty. So that actually sounded very well in the the international arena that Taiwan is not waiting for somebody else to defend us. We are very active and progressive in in trying to make a a role and defend our our freedom and our our country. And so that's very, plays very well in not only the uh, American politics, but also around the world. And Michael, of course,
1: Xiaobi Kim, took a phrase from former U.S. President Ronald Reagan on Thursday while addressing the press in Taipei. And she said that Taiwan should trust but verify recent comments or alleged recent comments by China's Xi Jinping that he didn't have any plans to attack Taiwan.
0: I'm not sure how many people in Taiwan 40 years later are going to recognize that quote as being from Ronald Reagan, I think it's kind of uh, just entered the zeitgeist as something uh people people say but but i I, I do think it's a sensible comment uh, you know I think that it was encouraging to hear Xi Jinping possibly saying that uh, that that an attack on Taiwan was less likely, and I think Taiwan should welcome that uh but verifying it and thinking about it very carefully and whether or not it's just some kind of ploy to buy time while China is having problems at the moment uh, is something well worth thinking about
2: right and Another point to think about is Xi Jinping saying that um, just because Taiwan is having elections, so he's trying to tone down his uh, his rhetoric. Um, so I definitely agree with Xiao Kim that we should trust and verify, because on one hand, the presidency may say that. On the other hand, the, uh, the, the Chinese air fighter jets still cross, you know, You know, the Taiwan Strait on a daily basis. So definitely needs to be verified if uh, China is actually, you know, upholding its rhetoric and uh, make sure that a conflict is not likely to happen between Taiwan and China.
1: And staying with election news now, but not related to any party politics, the Constitutional Court last Friday ruled that Article 69-1 of the Public Officials Election and Recall Act is unconstitutional. The article stipulates that only lawmakers, the mayor of a municipality, city or county and indigenous candidates can apply to a court to, well, recount the ballots. The court, in its ruling, stated that the law violates the constitutional principle of equality and said lawmakers should amend it as soon as possible. Prior to its being amended, though, the court said that candidates in all elections can apply to seal all or part of the list of electors and ballots for ballot recounting. So, Michael, put your legal out on, mate. That was quite interesting, I thought.
0: Indeed it was. So, the law that was at issue said that certain candidates for office had the right to petition for recall, but others, such as city councillors or township councillors, did not. And probably the reason for that was administrative convenience. Uh, The executive branch doesn't want the trouble of recounting every little tiny local election in Taiwan. However, uh, the constitutional court said that uh, first, this was clearly a case of discriminatory treatment t- t- that violated Article 7 of the Constitution, which protects the equality of all citizens before the law, and that it's possible for the government to discriminate against certain groups, but it has to have a very important public policy reason to do so. And the means of the discrimination needs to be tailored to that public policy objective. So here they found that uh, just a blanket ban kind of arbitrarily on some politicians being able to get recounts and others not being able to recounts was not proportional to the public interest in uh efficient election administrations and also they balance the interest the government does have an interest in not expending a lot of resources on you know Lijiang recalls and that sort of thing but uh that's counterbalanced by uh the right to elections which or uh, to and to stand in elections which is also in the constitution uh, so in the end, they balanced all of these competing concerns and came to, I think, the right decision that even a rural township county councilor uh, candidate should have a right to a recall in a very close election.
2: Right. Actually, I actually have a kind of personal experience. Like in 2018, there's a MPP candidate in Taichung for city council. Uh, she actually lost by... I think it's two or five votes, something like that. But because of this provision in the law, she does not get an automatic recount. So she has to sue to recount, and she has to pay that money herself. So that's why um, I think that that's why this is seen as extremely unfair, because if she lost by two to, uh, two to five votes, uh, out of uh, like 10,000 votes, I mean, the 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 country or, or or the city should actually afford her the opportunity to get automatic recount to make sure it's a fair election. Um, so that's why this uh, uh, Supreme Court in, or this, this, this is very uh, on point that it's actually fair to make sure that uh, whoever lost the election is get a right to get a a, a state's, uh sponsor recount and not to have to worry about paying the the recount herself Um, but that's number one but number two I also worry about uh, you know the politicians abusing the system and (laughs) just waging recount wars after wars, um, just like probably some we have seen in the United States
0: so this is another thing we should worry about to make sure uh, this is not get abused. Did did that uh, candidate in Taichung get her recount? Did the court allow it? Do you remember? No, she, she sued, so she actually paid for her recount, but she
2: still didn't, didn't win. Didn't win. <laughs> didn't win. Yeah, <laughs> just,
0: just uh, I know that uh, you spent uh, decades in the U.S., and uh, we do have some Americans out there. Just a, a point is that this was the constitutional court, which in Taiwan is different from the Supreme Court. Okay, yeah, that, that's a good point. Thank you.
1: And using the word supreme, which we will do now, because apparently the Supreme Administrative Court last week (laughs) overturned a lower court ruling which sided with an inmate and ordered the establishment of a voting booth inside the Taipei prison. Now, according to the Supreme Administrative Court, citizens do not have the right to legally request electoral bodies set up polling booths in prisons and that the refusal to do so does not cause significant harm to the public good. The ruling came after an inmate at the prison requested that the booth be put in, well, said prison in order that that he exercised his right to vote in national elections. Now, the inmate submitted the request through Prison Watch, asking the Central Election Commission and the Taoyuan City Election Commission to set up the polling booth at the prison, which, although called the Taipei Prison, is in fact located in Taoyuan. Now, the Taipei High Administrative Court sided with the inmate last month, but national and local electoral commissions were rather unhappy with that. Now, the ruling made by the Supreme Administrative Court cannot be appealed, and the chap, of course, won't be getting a voting booth in the prison.
0: Actually, there were a total of 11 inmates, as I recall, who petitioned to be able to exercise their right to vote. And uh, at the lower level of the administrative courts, uh, two of them won for uh, and got orders for Hualien and Taoyuan prisons to set up polling stations. Um, Now, those rulings were... Of great interest to the legal community because they were very liberal. Uh, they cited foreign practices in French prisons where there's voting and they talked a lot about the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Uh, they cited American cases. Uh, these are all kind of unusual things for the Taiwanese courts to be doing. These, of course, at the regular administrative court level, are younger judges who perhaps have more open minds. But the distinguished jurists on the Supreme Administrative Court decided otherwise. They, their rationale was that the business of administering elections is properly the purview or the, the the role in doing that is the legislature. The legislature should decide this, not the court's. Uh, they also thought the administrative burden on the prisons was high, and they thought that the it would be impossible to guarantee secrecy of elections, which is part of the bundle of rights that's included in the right to elections. So. Um, While I personally don't completely agree with that decision, I certainly can understand their uh, rationale and can live with it. But the, the, the lower courts were willing to take the side of prisoners who have are very stigmatized in Taiwanese society uh, and willing to consider all these foreign precedents I think is a very encouraging sign uh, not just for prisoner rights but for human rights in general in Taiwan. So while the war was not won uh, I believe that this case uh, did represent significant progress for Taiwan.
2: Yeah, I totally agree with Michael. I mean, this uh, this is... Represents a step forward uh, in terms of, you know, prisoner rights, right? Because prisoners when they are sentenced, their uh, right to vote is not taken away, Um, so they should be able to vote. But in looking at the ruling here, I think the five point, the the detail is at the 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 way that people vote. Because in Taiwan, you vote where you are registered, your address, and you vote at that zone only. If you want to vote. Outside of that zone, it's called the, uh, the, the 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 you vote where you are not registered, and that has been debated in Taiwan for the past few years because you know, like young people, they they don't live with their parents, but they register with their parents. So when they register in Kaohsiung, but they work in Taipei, you see when every election, day, a massive. Uh, human movement is occurring, right? People take the train on the high-speed rail to go back to their parents' house in order to vote. And that caused a lot of uh, economic hardship, especially to young people. So is that fair for young people to vote? They have to pay for a train ticket to vote? Is that even re- really fair? So this has been a debate going on in Taiwan for several if years, if not decades. But because Taiwan, uh, just like in the States, we have extreme... Political divide, so the fairness of election is extremely, uh, extremely important. So that's why the officials they are unwilling to let other you know ways of voting get in in order to. Maintain a certain fairness because if people get go to where they vote, they can hold up their tickets and then uh, they can read out the the tickets or the votes. So, so I think that's the 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 central issue here. So that's why the, the ruling comes down the way it is.
0: Just a side point uh, for those not familiar with the Taiwanese court system: uh, the administrative courts are a special branch of courts. That deal with disputes between the people and the government. In many countries, such as the US or England, those are just handled by the regular courts. But In Taiwan, and I believe also Germany, there's a special branch of the courts that handles this kind of dispute, and that's why they have their own Supreme Administrative Court. You might need to use them if, for example, you were injured in a bicycle accident because of a poorly designed road, then you would sue the state under the uh, State Compensation Act, and your complaint would go to the administrative courts not the regular courts
1: and that's why I got Michael on the show today Anyway, before we go this week, lawmakers approved an amendment to the Highway Act which aims to put pedestrians first when it comes to transport design. The government says the move will make the roads more people-friendly. The amendment states that road design, construction, maintenance and traffic engineering should be undertaken with pedestrians in mind in order to reduce traffic accidents. The bill states that when roads pass through downtown districts, near medical institutions, near government offices or at transport hubs, there must be nearby accessible sidewalks, pedestrian walkways or low. traffic traffic areas. The bill also appoints the Ministry of Transport to establish safety standards and the Ministry must also introduce regulations to ensure the safety of transport infrastructure. Now of course, Xiao, this has been going on for a long time, this traffic problem and pedestrians. Funny that they passed it just before an election.
2: <laughs> well, it's always uh, how it is in Taiwan, right? Nothing gets passed unless there's an election going on. Um, but uh, it's better than nothing. I mean, the pedestrian situation has been uh, very worldwide famous. Uh, that it, it's, uh, people describe it as hell for pedestrians. If you walk around the streets, even in Taipei, you see that there's some streets, that there's no potassium pathways that you have to fight for the room with the with the cars on the street. So this is a uh, 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 some kind of step in the right direction, and I hope that people can still you know push for more uh, potassium rights in in the upcoming elections.
0: I I completely agree. Of course, uh, a few years ago, I was struck by a scooter on Minzu west road in taipei uh who was running a red light and i was in the crosswalk on the green fortunately i wasn't severely injured but it really reminded me again of how dangerous it is to be a pedestrian but what i do always point out when people talk about this is sometimes people wonder why hasn't there been more urgency about this in the past and the reason is that the truth is that Taiwan's roads have become vastly safer than they used to be. Back in the late 80s, something like 8,000 people died each year in traffic accidents. Now it's down to, I think, two or 3,000. Um, and if you look around the country, uh, we see... A fair number of pedestrian fatalities, especially among older people here in Taipei, which ironically has by far the best sidewalks in all of Taiwan, but in places like Tainan, uh, which have horrible pedestrian pavements, uh, <laughs> scooter deaths are far more prevalent, uh, especially among young people, than uh, pedestrian safety. But this, this law is, uh, first of all, It's a good idea. Second of all, it illustrates something about the way Taiwanese government works. Ever since that CNN article came out embarrassing Taiwan in front of the world as being a hell for pedestrians, the Ministry of Transportation has been saying that, we need to build our way out of this problem. It's a question of road design, and and that may be true. I'm not an expert, although the Taiwanese government's preference for building stuff sometimes leaves me a little bit uh, skeptical. But they have been pushing for more budget and more rules about redesigning and reconstructing roads. And so now... They have gotten their way, which is almost always the way laws work in Taiwan. Taiwanese legislatures do not have the resources or the capabilities to pass this kind of law themselves. The executive branch drafts this kind of law and gives it to them to approve. Sometimes they make a few adjustments, but it's the executive branch that's writing these laws. And this is what the executive branch wanted. And this is what the executive branch got. Now, I will say that the part about the hospitals is really important. Uh, because of the health of a family member, I frequently go to General Veterans Hospital in, uh, near Sherpai, and also Cathay General uh, off of Renai Road. Both of those hospitals were built decades ago, and absolutely no thought was given to pedestrians in those areas. It is highly dangerous for patients and their families to walk in those areas. And I don't actually, because the hospitals are so big and the roads around them are so poorly designed and small, I'm not really sure what this new law can do to fix the, those existing problems. But at least in the future, they will be thinking and planning about these things. So it's a step forward.
2: Right. And, and also on a side note about, you know, in Taiwan also laws only be passed or mostly passed during the election year. Sometimes you see the uh, interesting phenomenon that um, the, the the candidates' proposed policies is being passed in the government as they were proposed. So this is some some interesting facts about Taiwanese elections.
1: And that's all we we'll are leave here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Xiao Xin Cheng. Good night, everyone. And by Michael Fahey.
0: Take care, everyone.
1: Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast in your favorite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows.
0: Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan
1: This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM
2: 100.